Bredesen hits Blackburn on opioids, legitimate fake news in Tennessee, and the appeal of the political outsider. This is Grand Divisions, a Tennessean politics and policy podcast. It's the week of August 27th. I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. And I'm Joel Ebert, political reporter. A ton of news to cover this week. We previewed a little bit last week with Dr. Manny Sethi, this opioids forum that, that happened uh, where he brought in the two leading contenders for the U.S. Senate race and the two leading contenders for the gubernatorial race. Our health reporter, Brett Kelman, was there to uh, cover it and just see what came out of the event. Brett, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Happy to be here. So you you went to the event. We heard chiefly from uh, Bredesen and from Blackburn. Bredesen kind of highlighted this previous attack on a legislative act that Marsha Blackburn did in talking about the uh, opioid crisis. Tell us a little bit more about, about what he said. Sure. So the, the most uh, distinctive and I think interesting thing that came out of this opioid summit was that when uh, Governor Bresden spoke, he made this immediate kind of vow that his first act, if elected, was to be to work to repeal or introduce legislation to repeal this 2016 law that was co-sponsored by his uh, his opponent, Marsha Blackburn. Um, and to understand this, you have to go back a little bit, but it's a pretty fascinating divide between their two campaigns on opioids, which I think the Bredesen campaign really wants to focus on. Uh, the law he's talking about was the Ensure Patient Access and Effective Drug Enforcement Act, which was passed with very large support in 2016 and signed by President Obama. It was co-sponsored by Blackburn. She argued in favor of it on the legislative floor. But what happened was, in 2017, there was this bombshell report that came out from the Washington Post in 60 Minutes. And what it basically said is that this very small change inside this law had effectively neutered the enforcement powers of the DEA to stop large shipments of narcotics. And that in the midst of a growing opioid crisis, Congress had taken away one of the best weapons the federal government had to stop these types of shipments. Um, so after this came out in October of 2017, which was right about when Marsha Blackburn launched her campaign. Yeah, she she ends up joining right after Corker made the announcement in September. So yeah, this pretty much came up on the heels of her entering the race. Politically, the timing would be terrible. But she, So she came out and she said, if my law did these things, it, these were unintended consequences, and we will look at it and we will fix it. Which brings us up to now, when Bredesen takes the stage at this opioid summit and says, this law hasn't changed. Day one, I'm going to introduce something to change it. And then during an interview afterwards, he directly questions why his opponent, with her eight or nine months since she said she was going to address this, hasn't done anything. It's a really distinctive attack. In the realm of opioids. So when when Marsha Blackburn spoke at the event first, I was there with Brett, and uh, she didn't take any questions. She didn't open it up to questions. Essentially, her folks told me later she had a TV interview related to John McCain, and so she had to leave. Later on in the day, we caught up with her at a separate event where she was, um, you know, eating lunch with Joni Ernst and a couple of agriculture folks. And she essentially said the DEA was supposed to give us its suggestions on how to fix this. And they have failed to give us an update on where we are at. So that's why I haven't really moved forward on an effort. Um, you know, we'll see how that plays out, uh, whether that's I, I, I can almost guarantee that this is going to be a, a campaign issue that the Democrats are going to just keep needling. And on. it's not unusual. Un- 
unusual for politicians to say, on my first day in office, I'm going to do X. This is a pretty nuanced policy position for Bredesen to say that he wants to take. He's not, it's not like border wall funding or some massive, I mean, this is a, he wants to sign on to a bill to make a fix that the DEA said is needed. That was the subject of this massive report. And I totally agree. It's absolutely going to be a a huge part of the campaign moving forward. I feel like it's almost like a political dream to be able to say on my first day, I'm going to directly undo a thing that my opponent did because it's specific and it's also timely and you get to smack them with it. And, you know, to what what Bredesen said at the event, he kept saying, we have heard over and over again as he's campaigned, and I'm sure Marsha Blackburn has too, that the opioid crisis is just all over the place, right? You go to a forum that is dedicated to it, of course it's going to be talked about, but he had pointed out, and I was there, I, w- I was on the campaign trail with him uh, when he wanted to talk about Social Security and, and you know, uh, retirement, you know, with folks who are older, and they bring up the opioid crisis. So it, it shows you the the pervasiveness of the issue. Brett, what did the, the uh, gubernatorial candidates have anything to say uh, at this forum? So from the gubernatorial candidates, it was a little bit more of the same. Uh, Carl Dean pushed for uh, expanding Medicaid, something he said many times before, which he feels would not only help just general health in Tennessee, but also provide treatment for people who have opioid abuse. Which, quick plug, uh, so did Bredesen. He said, although I'm not in control of it, I, I think what the state should have done it or should should do it in the future. And uh, Bill Lee was a little bit vaguer and a little bit more emotional and just spoke a little a lot about sort of the the power of the seriousness of the crisis. He did talk about the need for the statewide uh, PR campaign on the dangers of opioids, which he compared to a decade prior campaign to stop people from smoking, which I think nationwide has been largely successful. And he felt that that type of PR work was needed on opioids as well. One one other quick note on, on Representative Blackburn. She did mention this idea of a federal three-day limit on opioid prescriptions. That's the idea that you need to limit the amount of, of pain pills, essentially, you can get at any one time, as opposed to like a two-week supply. She, she, she said that she would advocate for this, this three-day limit. Obviously, this is going to, as we said last week, going to be a huge political issue, both for the gubernatorial candidates and the, and the Senate candidates moving forward. Brett, thanks for, for chronicling what happened at this recent forum. We really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Tennessee's governor's race pits former Nashville mayor Carl Dean, who has decades worth of political experience, against Williamson County businessman Bill Lee, a Republican who has zero political experience. That's a subject that's been on voters' minds recently, and as we've seen throughout the country in other races, political experience is not what it used to be. Lee is trying to use his lack of experience as a positive. After the unity rally that the Republicans had just after the August 2nd primary election, Lee said he thinks that people in particular want someone from the outside. The time for that is now. When I asked Lee whether Dean was sort of an insider, he said, quote, he certainly has been in government and a part of government and been a public servant for many years. So I'll be the outsider. Earlier on in the day, Lee admitted, though, that he was going to essentially be learning on the job. He turned to Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally, uh, who was at this Unity press conference that they had, and said, quote, I have much to learn, as you know, and I look forward to having the privilege to work with you to McNally. 
to talk a little bit more about political experience and candidates uh, running for office and how they fare. We did an interview with Sarah Truel, who is an associate professor of political science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Truel and her colleagues, Rachel Porter, did a study, uh, some of which they summarized for an article that appeared on Vox.com. It's under the headline, Mischiefs of Faction. Here's an interview with Sarah Truel where we discuss her research on political experience. You know, what are your main findings from your research uh, while you're at uh, North Carolina? Right. So this research agenda that I'm currently working on is examining the role of experience and what political scientists often call quality candidates, which are those who have held previous elective office at some point, and seeing how that has changed over time, if voters are still valuing experience, if voters are more likely to prefer certain types of experience outside of politics than other types of experience outside of politics. And as um, we talked about earlier, so far my work has only looked at um, candidates for the United States House of Representatives. But that's sort of the starting ground, and I think that we're going to you know, move this project forward and start examining um, the role of experience in other places as well. And I'm guessing we'll find very similar things, whether it's the United States Senate, if it's governor races, or if it's even more local elections um, for state legislature or whatnot. Um, so far, yeah, go ahead, please. I was just going to say, you know, in this piece that you wrote, uh, you had said that from 1980 to 2016, when you guys had researched, you'd found that, you know, uh, up until 2016, voters normally preferred the person with experience. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. So from 1980, which is when we started to have sort of data on um, experience of candidates, and that was a massive dating coding project, um, until 2016, well, so through the 2012 elections, um, voters always preferred candidates who had experience. And that was in the sense that they would win candidates when running against someone without experience. They would win at rates 70 to 80 percent of the time, right? So they were highly preferred over inexperienced candidates. Fast forward to 2016, and we see, um, well, even 2012, we start to see a shift downward. Um, but in 2016, we see a major shift. And what's really unique about that shift is most of it happens in the Republican Party. So there's something, and this is where our research is still still going, um, and we need to dig a little bit farther. But currently, anyway, or at least starting in 2016, Republican voters seem to be preferring candidates for office at least the House of Representatives, that do not have past experience in political office. And, and um, I just want to clarify one thing on that. When you looked at this, you took out all of the incumbent races, right, where there is an incumbent, yes. and you just looked yes, at absolutely. open races. Right, absolutely, because incumbents still win, right? And, that, and that's generally true even in election years like 2010 when we saw the strong Tea Party movement, we still saw a re-election rate for incumbents at about 90%. So this um, information that I am giving you is excluding all of those races in which there are incumbents, and it's looking at both general elections then and primary elections um, because there's more races, obviously, in a primary where there's no incumbent and saying what's happening in those. And that's where we're seeing the shift to, at least on the Republican side, a little bit on the Democratic side as well, but much more so on the Republican side of Republican voters preferring candidates with no previous experience in political office. Now, you you broke it down further and you looked at uh, what you dubbed preferred amateurs versus true amateurs. Explain the difference. 
Exactly. So a preferred amateur, and that's language from other literature um, that's been used before, so not our wording, but are people who have experience in a position that might tangentially or maybe even more directly relate to politics, but was not elected office. And so the word amateur is used to signal again that these are people who never ran a campaign before. They have never won elective office. But there is a category then that we use, again, preferred amateurs, that would be people who maybe served in office but were appointed, right? So you could imagine a state that uses um, appointments for judges as opposed to elections for judges. Um, you could imagine someone who was a campaign manager or a political advisor. Those would be the types of people that we classify as preferred amateurs, um, whereas the other category of amateurs are going to be those true amateurs, those people that really have no related experience whatsoever um, to politics, the best that we can tell, right? So take me through this a little bit. Why do you think some voters are, are, are you know, preferring these amateurs versus politically experienced folks? What's going on there? Yeah, so at least in Congress, and I think this is true more broadly, a lot of this seems to stem from the fact that candidates, even incumbents who are running for office, are running against Washington. They are running against um, the current institutions that are in place. They're running against the system. They're saying the system is broken. They're saying Washington is broken. They're saying um, our state needs someone else. We need to shake things up. This is the rhetoric that is happening across elections. And it is true on both sides, but I think we're hearing that more and more on the Republican side. And this is another area that our research is moving toward, um, figuring out a little bit more. But we're seeing um, that kind of rhetoric, and I think that kind of rhetoric is resonating with voters. And voters are saying, yeah, you know, you're right. We do need something else. Things aren't working. We need change. We need a businessman. We need someone who has solved, you know, problems at a different level. We don't need another Washington insider. We don't need another experienced politician. We need to try something different, and, right? Change is going to be our answer. Well, at the same time, though, some people on the other side would say government isn't business. You can't run government like a business. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And I imagine in the Tennessee governor race, you're going to hear that on both sides, right? So you're, I would expect that you would hear Bill Lee saying, we need a businessman. We need someone who has experience running a business. We need someone who hasn't been a part of the Washington establishment, who hasn't been a part of the Tennessee bureaucracy, who hasn't been a part of the governor's office, who hasn't been the mayor of Nashville. You need something different. And then on the Democratic side, I would imagine that Carl Dean's going to play up his experience and talk about that and talk about being pragmatic and talk about um, being the mayor of you know one of the biggest city in, in Tennessee and whatnot. Well, and, and, and it's also interesting because I think early on, even though these candidates aren't necessarily outright attacking each other and they, they say they don't have plans to, Carl Dean is pointing out that, you know, we don't need someone that's going to effectively be learning on the job. And, and Bill Lee conversely exactly. will say uh, we don't want somebody that is beholden to lobbyists that have known him for years. Uh, you know, exactly. I mean, how do those how do those arguments play out? Uh, do you see anybody in this time period in 2018 with a leg up? You know, are we still um, in this moment of Donald Trump? being an outsider, winning the highest office, and you think we could see that in, in Tennessee's governor's race? Yeah, I do. I, I think that there is still no reason within the Republican Party to move away from that. Um, so 
President Trump just had some of his highest approval numbers. They're in the top 40% currently um, for this last quarter. Um, not that things are going necessarily well for the president today, um, but there's nothing that is saying to people, obviously, that inexperience isn't working, right, or isn't the solution that we'd like it to be. Um, and so I would expect that Republicans will stand behind Bill Lee, and they will continue to vote for him. And by the rhetoric of, you know, we need someone who's not beholden to those interests, on the same side of the coin, I would expect Democrats to still be loyal to Carl Dean and say exactly his talking points, that experience matters, right? We need someone who knows what they're getting into, can hit the job running and go. What are some of the problems if somebody has literally no political experience, uh, is elected to office, and, you know, what are, what are the effects of that sometimes? Yeah, I think one of the biggest effects, and I think we're, we've seen this in the White House, too, in the last two years, is the the lack of information about who you need to help you succeed. Um, and, and what I mean by that in particular is staff. So it becomes really hard to know who the right people are to help you with the bureaucracy, to help you make connections with the state legislature, um, to help you get the job done, and to really work for you. When you come in with past political experience, you already have a network. And I get that that can be a problem for some people who want to do something differently, but you have a, a base of people who have done jobs for you before, who have worked in the political system, who have dealt with different branches of government, be it police officers, um, be it the, you know, the bureaucracy uh, for the president or for the state itself, the state legislature, if you've been a mayor, you've had these different types of interactions. And so you know the right people to hire. I think when you come in without that kind of experience, you, of course, have people you've worked with in prior jobs, but they might also have no ability to understand how the institutions work. In your, your research, uh, you had alluded to the fact that, or you said or even earlier in the interview, that uh, this, what we've been seeing with Republicans voting in more uh, inexperienced folks than uh, history has shown before. It's not necessarily uh, been the case with the Democrats in the same level, but there has been some discussion of, of that. You know, obviously you mentioned uh, Oprah Winfrey being, uh, you know, floated to run for president. Right. Uh, right. How does the celebrity... Cynthia Nixon, another governor race, right? Sure. So in New York, we have Cynthia Nixon um, running for the governor there. So yeah. very similar. How does the right. celebrity factor play into, you know, a, a, an inexperienced person running? Is it, does it give somebody a leg up and just shared name recognition in a way that, you know, somebody that literally didn't have any name recognition as a nobody uh, wouldn't have before? Name recognition certainly matters. Uh, what does end up happening, though, is that can get you attention initially, right? And again, I'll use Cynthia Nixon here as a great example. So she announces that she's running for governor of New York against Cuomo, and she grabs headlines. People are automatically paying attention. Um, that being said, I think what tends to happen is that attention only lasts so long, right? Um, and I think personally, for good reason, at the end of the day, it's much more useful to have someone that knows what they're doing. Um, I've written about this before, and I've used the analogies of you wouldn't want someone being a lifeguard and watching your children swim who doesn't know how to swim themselves, right? And so inexperience on some level can be a detriment. 
And while the celebrity status grabs headlines and you might recognize them, you certainly would know their name on a ballot, most people most of the time, I think, are capable of reflecting a little bit and saying that's one bridge too far. So, right? so it might not be the case for Bill Lee, who has experience running a business, but when you're talking about someone who is a talk show host or someone who doesn't really have um, maybe what people generally see as any of the, the skills that might be necessary, that's a different, a so, different story. So it's almost that you know somebody that has the celebrity status still faces the hurdles of do they have the substance, do they have the ability to fundraise that other candidates who wouldn't be celebrities also face? Exactly. How does uh, the president play in all this? I mean, obviously, he he shook up uh, the political establishment and the conventional wisdom, but is he an outlier? Do you think that we're going to see more folks like uh, Donald Trump, you know, who are uh, opinionated and and in some ways, uh, I guess, an extreme outsider run for for a local office or for statewide office in the future? Yeah. I would say, or even president. I, I think at this point, all everything is open. Um, there is, after the election of the president, um, no reason to think that you, too, can't be president or that you also don't have the skills um, to step in there and win an election, at least, regardless of what you think about you know, how things are happening in government. Um, it showed that inexperienced people can be elected, even at the very top of our electoral system. Um, and so I would expect, at least in the short run, at least as we you know, try to figure out, is it sustainable? Is this a good path? What are we going to do? Um, more people to feel comfortable throwing their name in the hat. Now, a big caveat there is, of course, you still need money to win an election. And so there will probably be a selection effect still, the type of inexperienced people that are running who have at least any kind of shot of winning are going to be those people more likely that have some money behind them. Sarah, you had mentioned that you are doing more research on this project. Um, what else? What else do you have to do? Yeah, so I'm using the 2018 elections right now as sort of a you know next step. Um, so we've collected me and um, two fabulous research assistants, Mara McDonald and Rachel um, Porter, have collected a lot of data on the campaign websites of candidates to see what kind of language they're using. So we're doing some massive text analysis. Of do they talk about their inexperience? Do they talk about their experience? What kinds of words are they using? And that's going to be one unique part of the project that will allow us to get a better sense of how this is playing, how people are perceiving them, um, and more importantly, how they're projecting themselves. Um, And then as we move forward, I think these questions about voters, which I make a lot of assumptions in our data that these are the kinds of candidates that voters are preferring simply based on them voting for them. But I think we can dig a little bit deeper and do some surveys of um, how the electorate sees these people. What is it in the Republican Party that makes a businessman or makes a military veteran attractive as a candidate? What is it on the Democratic side of the aisle that makes an educator or someone with non-elected political experience um, or a lawyer, which are you know the, the categories that Democrats do well in, um, what makes those people attractive? And so doing some data or data collection on voters themselves is the next step as well. Sarah Truel is an associate professor of political science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her and her colleague, Rachel Porter, uh, submitted this piece to Vox. So you can read more about their work uh, on Vox.com. Thank you again for, for, you know, being on our podcast and talking through this with us. Thank you so much. I really enjoy the opportunity. We'll see if Billy is able to actually turn his 
professional experience or lack of political experience into a, into a positive that voters can relate to. Obviously, we anticipate Carl Dean is going to hit on his own professional experience within politics as the campaign unfolds. Uh, we'll see if it comes out in some debates that were recently announced. Joel, what's the lineup for the gubernatorial debates? Yeah, it looks like there's going to be three debates all in October. The first one is October 2nd in Memphis. That's going to be sponsored by our uh, newspaper network, the USA Today Network, Tennessee, and WMC-TV. Uh, that's going to be held at uh, University of Memphis. Again, that's October 2nd. Um, on October 9th, so a week later in Kingsport, uh, the Kingsport Times News will hold a, a debate uh, at Eastman Employee Center. And then uh, a couple days later, October 12th in Nashville, the third and final debate, this one hosted by Next Star Media Group, is going to be held at Belmont University. It's going to give voters the uh, final chances to kind of see the candidates on stage together. Um, of course, there's going to be forums that Billy and Carl Dean will be at where they will kind of share the stage in some sense. But this will give you a head-to-head look at how the candidates line up. Yeah, not not a ton of combativeness yet in the race. Maybe these, these debates will be the form. We'll have to find out. Uh, there were also a couple of additions uh, in the personnel department for the Dean campaign, including a former Tennessean reporter. Who joined the, the team, Joel? Yeah, Michael Cass, who is a 15-year reporter at the Tennessean. He was most recently at the mayor's office. He's going to serve as senior communications advisor uh, to the Dean campaign. Joining him is Maury Hill, who uh, will serve as deputy communications director, uh, was most recently at McNeely, Pickett, and Fox uh, Communications. So. Yeah, just like we talked about before, it's it's very common after the primary for these these campaigns to really start to staff up a little bit and uh, bring on more help as they you know try to expand and, and reach out to, to new and different voters. Turning to the Senate race, we have a new story out from our colleague Joey Garrison, who, uh, as of this recording, is an, available for an interview. So I'm going to ask Dave a couple of questions. This story really is all about fake news, isn't it, Dave? Yeah, so it's it's, it's pretty weird. The, the headline is, Anonymous Google adds skirt rules to alter headlines in Tennessee Senate race. And it actually focuses on these ads that are referencing Tennessean stories. It's, it's a little bit odd. Uh, apparently, under Google rules, you are able to tweak what appears to be the headline in a newspaper, in this case, Tennessean ad, um, in order to make it say something maybe slightly different than what the story actually says. For example, one of the Google ads has the headline, quote, Trump voters idiots, according to top Bredesen spokesman. So that appears like that might actually be a Tennessean headline. It is not. That is not what the headline is. That's not what the story says. The actual headline is Tennessee Democratic Operative Under Fire for Past Explicit Tweets About Trump and Supporters. And of course, this is the story that Joey wrote referring to uh, Mark Brown, who uh, is an operative with the Tennessee Democratic Party, who has tweeted out some uh, questionable things either about the president or his supporters and Republicans on the national level, on the local level, have seized on his comments. Yeah, and they're actually also through these Google ads, you're able to change what the, what's called the URL. That's that thing that you type in, the www dot, and it takes you to a page. The URL for that, for that ad, is tennessean.com backslash Bredesen insults backslash Trump voters. Again, that is not a Tennessean URL. That is not what the story URL was. The URL is no longer live. But according to Google rules, because this ad is referencing a news website, as opposed to a specific website promoting a candidate or campaign, 
the election advertiser, like the person who's paying for it, doesn't actually have to disclose who they are. Oh, it's kind of like a strange loophole. <laughs> In here, right? So both campaigns are kind of like we're doing what's best for our candidates. The the Blackburn spokeswoman Abby Siegler said we're running positive Google search ads surrounding our candidate's name. Uh, the Bredesen campaign said we know the swamp is hard at work creating fake news because they don't want Governor Bredesen's common sense leadership to clean up their mess in Washington. So this is sort of the latest behind the scenes thing that has gone on, right? Like we we don't know that any person affiliated with the campaign be, is behind this. But uh, earlier in the, the race, uh, before we even had this podcast, Bredesen's campaign said that they were hacked at one point. Yeah. Um, so it shows that there are undercurrents of people that are trying to influence this election in some way. And we saw that in 2016. I mean, you see that there can be a Facebook ad right. or a Facebook post and people don't, people aren't looking to it, see it what the source you. is necessarily. Yeah. All they see is something like, Bredesen insults sure. Trump or something like that, and they might see Tennessean, even though, again, it's not from our newspaper, and they think that, that lends it credibility. It's a little bit frustrating, as a newspaper reporter, I'll say, <laughs> and I, I mean, it looks like the campaigns are in theory, trying to fight it, but I guess it's just, it's a part of politics today. In the past, I know that you had a story altered at one point where I think our old uh, system here wouldn't, uh, I guess it allowed you to tell the story, David. Yeah, we'll we'll say that it was a, uh, it was an unfortunate problem here. We fixed it very quickly, but it allows you to change URLs again, that little, the www dot at the top of a story and still take you to a Tennessean story. So you could change the words in it. Again, it was not something we did. It was something other people outside the building could do, but it's a way to make it appear as though there's bias or that there's some sort of slant on a story. It's not what we're doing, right? But again, if you're just Googling for the term Phil Bredesen, then in the past, that phrase, Phil Bredesen top eight insults Trump pops up, which is not quite right and a little bit frustrating for everybody involved. And it wouldn't be shocking if more of these sort of anonymous background things continue. We saw that in the governor's race when there were anonymous text messages sent out attacking Bill Lee and Randy Boyd. So it wouldn't be surprising to see more of that go on in either the governor's race or the Senate race this year. As we noted earlier in the cast, the governor's race has three debates lined up. Turning to the Senate, it looks like we at least have one so far. Uh, Dave, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's right. Marsha Blackburn and Phil Bredesen will square off September 25th at Cumberland University. That's in Lebanon, Tennessee. Uh, The USA Today Network, News Channel 5, Nashville Public Television, and the League of Women Voters of Tennessee are all working together to host and stream the debate. Uh, This has kind of been in the works for a while. The Blackburn camp just confirmed this week that they would participate in this debate, uh, and the Bredesen camp was very strong in uh, rebuking uh, Marsha Blackburn for not agreeing to participate in other debates. She has formally... um, Declined. declined. Yes, that's right. In a, a Rhodes debate, is that right? Yeah, that's right. At Rhodes College in, in Memphis. And we heard from the president of Rhodes College just expressing dismay at that. Again, right now, there's only one scheduled debate in the Senate race. Maybe we have more, but yeah. it's unclear. Uh, well, we've, we've talked to the Blackburn campaign, and it sounds like, again, as of recording this uh, podcast, that they're li- lining up and planning to participate more, but uh, they have yet to come out with the, the logistics. So uh, as of right now, we only have one. Uh, looking back at historic precedent in 06, I think we had uh, three in uh, the 2006 race between Harold Ford and Bob Corker. Yeah, that's right. And I think that, you know, the Bredesen camp wants more debates. Blackburn camp might not. It, it, it's kind of that traditional front runner or potential um, 
candidate who may have more of a competitive advantage, like a Republican in Tennessee, might want fewer debates, and the, the Democrat might want more. But uh, but we'll see. Again, only one debate right now, September 25th at Cumberland University on News Channel 5 if you're in, here in Middle Tennessee. But we're streaming it on every platform for the USA Today Network Tennessee. As we noted recently, our vaunted former colleague, Jordan Bowie, is no longer with <laughs> us here at the Tennessee, and he's alive he's and well still in Nashville. Alive, yeah. <laughs> he's doing just fine. But we are very excited to announce that we have a new member of our State House and politics team, and she's joining us on the podcast today, Natalie Allison. Congratulations, and thank you so much for joining us. We're excited. Why, thank you. It's good to be here. I'm sure that our Listeners and our readers already know lots of Natalie's coverage. She's already been covering politics here for a little bit for a while. But Natalie, can you just run us through really quickly some of the coverage that you've done during the primary session and just kind of leading up to now covering politics? Sure. Yeah. Well, I didn't have a ton of involvement in it uh, this past session with the legislature. You know, I jumped in here and there. Um, you know, if there's a bill maybe Joel and Jordan couldn't get to, I would hop on and cover that. Uh, leading up to the primary, I helped some with the gubernatorial race. I did a profile on the candidate stances on LGBTQ issues and talked to them about where they were, looked into some of their pasts, um, talked to them about what they would do as governor if bills came in front of them that were targeting the LGBTQ community. Um, and and now I'm getting ready to start back with more of that. For, yeah. for those that aren't familiar, Natalie uh, was our evening breaking news reporter who also did a lot of coverage on uh, Nazis, white supremacists, uh, and, you know, including some of the rallies that we had here or, or the efforts to have rallies here in Tennessee. So tell us a little bit more about uh, just generally don't spill any state secrets, but tell us a little bit more about what's percolating, what like some of the ideas that you have that you're going to kind of follow as the as the general race heats up. Sure. Well, we're going to look at spending. We're going to look at who's funding these races. We're going to look at some of the issue stories, where they stand, um, look at records where, where that's applicable and just get them on the record about what they think and and what they would do as as governor. In my case, I'll probably be focusing more on the gubernatorial race here in Tennessee, um, helping some, of course, on the Senate race as well. And of, of course, Natalie's going to be right there with me. Uh, any debate that is going to happen, it'll be the two oh, of us. Oh, they're covering. so excited. They're so excited for it. Joel loves debates. <laughs> we it's his are favorite. stoked. Yes. See, we're all stoked here. We can't wait. I'm stoked to see Joel's got a couple pieces coming out. He has been out on the campaign trail. He left the office. He was out with some candidates. <laughs> Joel, what do you what do you got coming? Uh, yeah, I, I spent the day uh, kind of with Marsha Blackburn and Phil Bredesen in some sense, not necessarily on the bus with them, um, but going to events that they held. Uh, so I'm just going to do a profile again, kind of showing you, pinning the scene of what it's like on the campaign trail with them, who they're talking to, what's said, uh, but then also as sitting down with them for a brief interview to kind of peel back the onion a little bit more of why they're doing this, what got them into it. Uh, I asked Phil Bredesen the question that I think is interesting. What did he do after he left office? You know, I, I didn't really, did he go into the woods, you know? And, I saw him at Kroger one time. <laughs> I, I, I can, I can verify that. And and so for a little bit more for Marsha Blackburn hearing about, you know, who she is beyond her role in Congress. So that's kind of the goal of this piece. Uh, of course, we're going to travel with them throughout the rest of the, the race. Uh, just this gives you a, a chance to read a little bit more over the Labor Day weekend. Yeah, that sounds great. And, and also, we are excited, listeners, to continue hearing from you. Again, if you have questions that you want to have for these candidates or if you have concerns or there are topics that you want to read about or listen to, please let us know. Again, please continue to review us and rate us on, on iTunes or wherever you hear fantastic political podcasts. We really appreciate your support. Obviously, continue to, to follow all of the coverage we have at the USA Today Network, both uh, in, in Nashville, but also in Knoxville and Memphis and, and all the other papers that we have 
Uh, we Again, we appreciate your support. This is Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. And I'm Joel Ebert, political reporter. We'll see you next week. Bye.